Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, this is going to be a great episode because we are going to get into something that is a true part of Americana, something that I grew up with, arguably a backbone, at least a vertebrae, if not the entire backbone, of the United States, especially for the transportation system, the driving infrastructure. The current American interstate system was based on one road, the Mother Road, Route 66, and we are going to get into its incredible history, what it's meant to the United States, how it came to be, and of course, we have to talk to the man who really repopularized this, uh, Michael Wallace, who wrote a book on the Donner Party, which we spoke about um, a couple episodes ago. You should check that out. He is the guy who's kind of credited with the resurgence of interest in Route 66, and he wrote the uh, quintessential, the Bible to this road called Route 66, the Mother Road. Uh, so we're just going to get right into this. Uh, Michael, thank you for being on the program again. You know, to get, to get us started here, one of the kind of interesting, you know, almost metaphoric ways to look at Route 66 as a road that, that kind of cuts right down the middle. In some weird ways, it kind of divides us because it literally runs through the entire length of the Western United yep. States. But, you know, reading the book and, and your stories and, you know, it, it's, it's an amazing unifier in this time period when, when we need something like that, which is, which is kind of cool, uh, and really a, the lasting legacy of the road itself. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and, and before, I, I want to ask you a couple specific questions, but I have to congratulate you on something that I don't even think you knew or, or that you were aware that, that you were a part, a club you were a part of, and that is the Fascinating Nouns Two-Timers Club. And I don't mean that I caught you cheating on your significant other, Chris Hansen style, but what it means is you've been on the show two times for two different topics, and I hope that this significantly changes your life for the positive. How do you feel about that? I think it's great. Um, yeah, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm working now on my 20th book, so... You know, we ought to do a show on every one of them. <laughs> the first the 20-timer club? <laughs> the 20-timer club. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, no, I think it's great. Well, and, and this is what's kind of cool because it kind of goes a little full circle because in the previous episode, we talked about your work uh, as the sheriff on cars. And in uh, we had to talk about it for a little bit because it's extraordinarily relevant to this episode. And I don't think I really realized that that movie, because I was, I didn't watch it when it came out. Not that I'm not yeah. a fan. Not that I'm not a fan of Pixar movies. I do love them, but I didn't. I just didn't happen to. I just didn't catch it. And then I, someone told me like how it relates to Route 66, and this movie so encapsulates the essence of. It's really the story of Route 66 told through the eyes of Radiator Springs, and there you are, not a professional voice actor. You know, but the guy who wrote the book, literally, uh, Route 66, The Mother Road, uh, there you are, smack dab in the middle of the movie. How did that happen? Oh, well, that, <clears throat> that's very simple to explain. Okay. <laughs> uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, yeah, pre-Cars 1, uh, I was out at my hideout in Santa Fe doing some writing, and my wife... Suzanne called me and she said, listen, John Lasseter at Pixar really is trying to get a hold of you. You should call him. So I called him and he said, well, here's the deal. Uh, I appreciate you calling me. I've got a project that is tailor made for you and we need your help. And then he went to explain that he had read my book and it inspired him and he put all his sons and wife in a van and they traveled the road and he wore out a couple of my books and and he said let me bring you out here to california and we'll talk about this so i acquiesced and i went out there and um, met with them 
and they explained uh, the creative team, the film they wanted to do, a film about a hotshot race car who's just full of himself, and uh, he gets lost uh, somehow on an old road and ends up finding out that it's perfectly good to be a race car, but sometimes, sometimes it's also good to slow down and uh, take stock of things, you know, and they, they said there's only one road that could be, you know, uh, arguably the most famous highway in the world, Route 66. And I agreed. And they said, you're the guy, you're the, the considered the guru of 66. You're the, you know, Mr. 66. Uh, because my book, the book they're talking about, which came out in 1990, really sparked the revival of interest. So uh, they said, we'd like you to become our consultant on this. And and I agreed and became a consultant and <laughs> took the entire creative team out on the road wow. uh, uh, a couple of times and, and went back and forth. And then they, they had seen uh, me in a lot of films because the the truth is i i have i do make a, a fair amount of my income from my voice uh not as not not in this way but as a historian author appearing uh, uh in different documentary films and so forth so they were very familiar with my instrument my voice and they liked it and they said, you really have to be in this movie because you embody Route 66. So, so I became the sheriff of Radiator Springs. And then they always, the Pixar always does a book, a big, beautiful sort of coffee table-like book about each one of their films. The art of Nemo, the art of Toy Story. So they commissioned uh, my wife, Suzanne, uh, in me to to write that book uh, for Chronicle Books, so we did, and it was a huge seller, sold tens of thousands of copies. And then I I did the voice. Uh, I you know I have a SAG card and a after card, and and I loved uh, all aspects of the work I, I did on that. And then it wasn't long after that that Disney, of course, Disney and Pixar were combining right then. And uh, then Disney acquired my services to serve as a consultant again with the Disney, with the Imagineers to create Cars Land, which has become one of the big attractions in the Disney world. And it's down in Anaheim and California Adventure right next to Disneyland. And it's the entire village of Radiator Springs come to life, 12 acres. Um, uh, the, the, the Cadillac Range is there, Waterfall, Flo's Diner, the Cozy Cone, and all of us. As a matter of fact, uh, people go there and they say, oh, this must be the set for the movie. And then they think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> it's an animated movie. I mean, it's so real. It's not Roger Rabbit, right? And, uh, yeah. So... Uh, Anyway, it, it's been when Cars One came out, and, and clearly of the three Cars movies, the best one, in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of others, is Cars One. Uh, after Cars One, they got off the road uh, a bit, and that uh, uh, you know traveled around the world, which was fine. It was good. They were good, but that Cars One really. It turned out to be just the way I wanted it to turn out. And I made sure that the, the pivotal point of that movie is very simple. Uh, it's when Sally has lightning up on that Mesa and they look out and, and they're looking at Arnhem and Valley. And she explains to him, this is the way we used to travel. And it superimposes shows the freeway, the interstate, the super slab, just tearing through the landscape. And it shows 66 meandering down, winding down, touching base at all these little towns along the way. And then it breaks into this 
this whole uh, backstory image, film image of Radiator Springs before they were cut off, before they didn't get that exit. And uh, you have Sweet Baby James singing Our Town, and boom, that was the message that I really wanted and that we got out of the movie. When Cars 1 came out on long stretches of 66, 85% of which is still there, um, business went up 30%. But more importantly, it turned on a lot of kids to to the fact that they can still experience America before it became generic, warts and all. And uh, it got them interested, and they still are, in historic preservation. And, and, and that's why now you find Route 66 kind of percolating into school curriculum. Um, there are school teachers that use Route 66 to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, and it's very painless and appealing to the the kiddos. Well, I, I will tell you that that is, I mean, that's a great introduction because it, it is like they took your book and turned it into a movie, uh, especially with what I loved is they have the cone. I think it's the cone motel, uh, the safety cone motel. Cozy cone. Cozy cone. Yeah, yeah. Which is, this, you know, it's the wigwam motel. Uh, which which there's one here in California, which I'm going to hopefully there's, drive past and take a picture. There's a couple others, I believe. Um, well, there's one other. Uh, yeah, in, in, in the, the Wigwam is even a, a better example, and that's in Holbrook, Arizona. Okay, right, right. And, and these are amazing places where they, they're just teepees that you would you know spend the night in. And what I learned is it's the Wigwam Motel, and I had this brain uh, surge last night, and I was wondering, where did that term, what's the difference between a motel and a hotel? I mean, obviously there's colloquial differences, but it turns out that motel means motor hotel, which while right. it came, you know, the, the word was coined in 1925 before Route 66 was even commissioned. But really, Route 66 kind of popularized that because that word's not really known anywhere else in the world. It was this road that kind of made that term, you know, reality, which is kind of cool. Well, yeah, it, 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 that, that's the point. The road really tracks the whole history, too, of the internal combustion engine because – when when we, the editorial we, when Americans uh, discovered what we now call cars, uh, it, it, they, they didn't take on immediately, mainly because they were the play toy of the rich. They, no one could afford a car, and there were few and far between. And there certainly weren't very many paved roads up beyond urban areas. There were no federal highways or anything like that. Well, so a good roads movement, it was called the good roads movement, started in the early 1900s and, uh, to, to push for uh, better roads. And along with that, we had Henry Ford developing the assembly line. And the assembly line made the car affordable. Everybody could get a Fliver, could get a Ford a school teacher, a farmer, a clerk, you know, it was um, every man's car. And, 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 and that went right along. And then you had early highways, uh, like another one I've written about the Lincoln highway, which was born, you know, in, in 1913 and stretching from, uh, from Manhattan, from Times Square to the golden gate. Uh, but, it was in 26, and when Cyrus Avery, uh, who is considered the father of Route 66, and uh, I know all his family very well. In fact, his grandson, Cyrus uh, Stevens Avery II, uh, passed away last year. Uh, he was quite elderly, but he was... Uh, uh, one of the officers on the board of the Route 66 Alliance, the preservation organization that I founded, uh, the nonprofit to to uh, protect and, and educate people about Route 66. Uh, but Avery was incredible. Uh, he uh, was a civic and business leader like me. He was an adopted Oklahoman. And... Uh, 
was just a born leader, and he's the one that really pushed the federal government for the creation of Route 66. And of course, I talk about him in the the beginning of that book, but Cy Avery. Um, so when the road, it was all the timing was was just perfect. So you have this road that's uh, really made official in November of 1926, and it it couldn't have been better. The, 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 this was years, a few years before the Great Depression. It was a time of uh, uh, great celebration, even though we were on the wagon as a country. There was a, a, a lot of sort of mischief in the air and hope in the air. And uh, it was a time when people were doing all kinds of crazy things from the Charleston to swallowing goldfish to dance marathons and sitting on flagpoles and everything else. So, Did you say swallowing goldfish? After, yeah, goldfish swallowing. No, what you, what's not that? a big deal. <laughs> it, uh, well, literally picking a goldfish up by its tail alive and putting it in it down your throat. That is such a I mean, weird thing this, that you pulled out for the 1920s. Was that like a thing in the 20s? Yeah. <laughs> I never heard yeah. that with, with the so-called flapper generation huh. and kiddos. And yeah, so yeah. But the, the point of all that, okay. yeah. uh, that is, is in 1928 then, that's when Avery came up with the idea of that transcontinental foot race, which became known as the Bunyan Derby. And that foot race from L.A., to Chicago, uh, west to east, and then on the Madison Square Garden in New York, that race was like six Super Bowls rolled into one. I mean, it got amazing coverage, war-type headlines, the runners are coming. You know, Will Rogers came out in Oklahoma to greet the runners, and, and it, it, you know, it was a storybook ending. Uh, Andy Payne, this part Cherokee, Oklahoma farm boy, won the race and won $25,000 and paid off the family farm and went on to lead a, 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 an incredible life as a civil servant, died an old man in bed. But that race, that stunt, if you will, put Route 66 on everybody's map. And then just after that, you have that incarnation of the dirty 30s, the one-two punch of depression and dust bowl and that's when the road uh, figuratively rolled up its sleeves or her sleeves, because that's when Steinbeck, by the end of the decade, was calling it the Mother Road in the Grapes of Wrath. And and it really served the nation. Uh, it became the highway of escape for Missourians and Arkies and Okies and Kansas farmers and uh, Eastern Colorado and the Texas Panhandle, either people who were were dusted out, or if if the dust didn't get them, they were tenant farmers like the fictional Joes uh, who lost their land, and they had to get out, and they had that huge, huge mass migration of these despot pilgrims following the mother road. Uh, following the scent of orange blossoms and and uh, lemons to the San Joaquin Valley, uh, to some of the plants where they could get jobs in California, but a lot of them to that great uh, agricultural valley. Uh, and but it wasn't all rosy because they were lied to by some of the major uh, agricultural interests out there. The, for, for example, the Grapes of Wrath was banned in Oklahoma and California for a while because Oklahomans didn't like the image it projected, and Californians didn't like it, the powers out there, because it made California look bad. When they're bringing all these people in, there weren't enough jobs. They were treated like the dirt they worked. It was just horrible. But nonetheless, many of them created new lives out there. That's when I always kid that Bakersfield became the third largest city in Oklahoma. <laughs> you know, 
and it, it, it was a remarkable decade. And then following that, boom, 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 the war. And again, the road came into play. It was a road of men in arms. There, you know, there was a lot of restrictions on on civilian travel due to rubber shortages and gas. Uh, uh, the automobile industry switched over to producing jeeps and tanks and aircraft and so forth. Uh, and the whole nation was behind that war. And all along Route 66, from the naval station at Great Lakes in Chicago, all the way out to uh, California, you had these military bases that were either existed or were created, and all these states of, of soldiers and airmen and marines and sailors and, and you know out in, out in california out in the mojave you had uh, blood and guts Patton training his desert warriors often uh, of uh, in 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 that locale and those troops that went to on to sicily and italy and so forth uh, they into North Africa. They were the ones that took on the Africa Corps and Rommel, and and a lot of those Italian and German soldier prisoners came back to where, to a lot of prison camps along Route 66, like at Shamrock, Texas, and El Reno, Oklahoma, and Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Uh, so they were the road was really a big part of the road effort. So that was a key incarnation. Then the war ends. Uh, we've defeated the Axis. The GIs come home. There's great exuberance and there's great prosperity. And GIs are on the GI Bill. They can go to college. They can buy a new car. They can buy a house. Suburbia starts to be created. The whole, you know, the whole nine yards. But more importantly, these People, as Americans always have, were always gypsy-footed, wanted to travel, and they wanted to show their families where they had trained. Or, or, you know, look at America, you know, see the USA near Chevrolet. So they went on the road, and that evolved quickly into the 1950s, into the development of those big, thin, gas-guzzling Detroit sleds. And you, everybody had to have one in the driveway, sometimes two. And, and you know, all through those very interesting years of Eisenhower. Uh, and speaking of Eisenhower, then it was Ike himself in 56 signing that interstate highway bill that spelled the death knell for roads like Route 66, this road that... It, uh, that linked two thirds of the continent, uh, but it took until the mid '80s. It took uh, 20 years for those interstates to be completed. Uh, it, it, and what happened is this was all going on, and people like me, as a young man, were witnessing uh, witnessing this whole transformation. You know, the people that made out were the big highway builders, construction, the automobile industry, uh, uh, the energy businesses and so forth. Uh, you know, our love affair with the internal combustion engine goes way, way back. And, 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 and it really blossomed fully during that time. So... So those were the so-called heyday years, and it's a people when they think of Route 66, depending on their age, they think of that time of poodle skirts and James Dean '57 Chevys and cheeseburgers, and the so-called good old days. Well, I, I'm not a big believer in the good old days, and it depends on who you are, who you, where you came from, the color of your skin, and so forth. And one thing I never do at Route 66 is romanticize it because it could be a tough, grueling journey. That was nothing romantic about the, the Okies, about those Despo pilgrims. There was nothing romantic about being a serviceman or woman in the war. And there, there, there certainly wasn't anything romantic even in the heyday years 
if you have been, you know, I'm an, say I'm an eight-year-old boy in 1952, leaving St. Louis in my family's car and it, on a vacation. And it was great because I knew I was going to go east or west on 66. And I was going to see things I had never seen before. I was going to go to Springfield, Illinois and see rub Abraham Lincoln's bronze nose at his grave and eat a cozy dog. I was going to see Lake Michigan. Going west, I saw my first cowboys and Indians and oil wells and, you know, outlaw hideouts and great mountains and rivers in the Pacific Ocean. You know, it, it, it was great. But what if I had been a little eight-year-old black boy from St. Louis? A far, far different journey. There, you would have had to have an important publication that we in the Route 66 community and my nonprofit have really pushed back on the front page and highlighted in the last couple of years, and that's The Green Book. In fact, there's a movie out right now called The Green Book, which gets into all this, and that was the book published by a, a, a African-American postal worker in Harlem Every year, his last name was Green, and it told black travelers where they could safely stop, where the sundown towns were, where they could get rooms, where they could eat, where they could get gas, where they could go to the bathroom, for Christ's sake. I mean, it was it, it was a, a book that saved a lot of embarrassment, but it also probably saved a lot of lives. So you see what I'm saying? That's why I say this early in my book. The road is a mirror held up that reflects the nation. So it, it's it's not all, you know, fun and games. It, it's black and white and shades of gray. It can be good, bad, and ugly. It's just like those people that I write about, you know, the Donners, Crockett, Billy the Kid, and now Bell Star. There were, there were. You've heard me say this. There were no white hats. There were no black hats. Really, very few. There were a lot of gray hats. And Route 66 is like that. It could be very gray. Sometimes the mother road could be an abusive mother. And 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 I'm always about telling the real story. That's what I'm always about. No, and and I agree with that. There's a couple things. I mean, that's a big. I mean, that's a big introduction. But I want to break some of that down because it's really important to kind of because you talked about a couple of things that are there's some incredible parallels across the country. You know, the the foot race, which you talk about, which starts off Route 66. It's kind of interesting because I, I talk about another guy in Los Angeles named Charles Lummis, who in the 1800s did a similar stunt. I always thought that that was kind of an odd way. To, to, to popularize the road, but I guess it made sense. And before we go any further, I do want to mention that what, el what else is cool is that this Route 66 is the first real transcontinental highway, essentially connecting Chicago to Los Angeles. I want to get some of these little nitty gritty details that some people listening may not know. Um, and, and it's, you know, and it, it wasn't a super highway. It was this meandering road that connected all of these small little towns through, I think it's right. eight states. Uh, eight states, three time zones, twenty four hundred plus miles. Yes. Yeah, and once you know, I think Kansas it's in for you know twelve miles or something like that. Like it's a small little, less, yeah, a little the, less than fourteen miles. 14, right? Yeah, and it's it's this incredible road, and it crosses so many different states. And you know, and I think what you're saying is is really relevant because you are crossing a lot of different types of people, a lot of different cultures. America has, in it's very regional. Um, you know, and, and there are the, all these different cultures you're going through. So you do kind of have to be wary. It is romanticized a lot, but I do like the fact that you're taking this realistic take on it. Um, yeah. and then in the thirties, I wanted to mention this really quickly because I thought this was really fascinating is you're talking about how the Okies are going across the country and it's very similar almost to, to the, to the century mark, almost a hundred years from when people were traveling, like your other book that, that we talked about, the Donner Party, the Donner. where you have these, yep. these historic transcontinental trails that are going from the Midwest out to California and places. And everyone is looking to go out West. And this is really a hundred years later with more advanced technology. The, you know, the, the, uh, the horseless carriages are now taking people out instead of the, the big wagon trains. But there is a really interesting, 
interesting parallel between those those two things, which I, I found fascinating, and is kind of you know a theme of both books, really. Although I, I, one question I want to ask: Did people end up you know like the Donner Party uh, getting stuck out Texas Chainsaw Massacre style and having to eat each other, or was that really kind of reserved no, no, for no, the no. for the earlier days? No, 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 nothing, nothing like that happened. Not that bleak of an uh, outlook. Just to... <laughs> no, okay. some of them were bamboozled by con artists and things like that, of course. But uh, the majority of that's why it, it was so silly for Oklahoma, for example, to uh, at least for a while uh, ban that book, because it's probably one of the most important novels of the last century. Uh, Steinbeck beautifully wrote it and John Ford beautifully interpreted it in, in his film, which was shot well, one of the first films to be really shot out in location. Uh, and it was considered revolutionary at the time, you know, uh, in fact, uh, when people would, I've talked to people who actually worked on and in the, the film and uh, when they'd be approached by town, town fathers or reporters, what kind of film are you making out here? Uh, he, uh, Ford would always say, oh, it's a travel movie. You know, so he he, he wouldn't get any uh, uh, flack. But there's there's no more, uh, there's no stronger character, resilient character in literature than, than Ma Jode. And the soliloquies that Tom Joe at the end of the book where he's leaving that camp in California and striking out and his mother is fearful. And she said, but Tommy, I won't, I won't see you again. And he said, Ma, you'll see me everywhere. You'll see me in the eyes of a child that's starving and there's no food. You'll see me in the eyes of a man who gets beat up by a cop for no reason. You'll see me everywhere. It's it's a very very powerful book, and uh, and it, it it continues to work today. Yes, there would be some perils, but again, we, the American people, our brand, we've always been in movement. We're moving people, and yes, that California dream, which was sparked back in the. 1840s uh, it, it is, has remained. It became a nightmare for some, but for some, the dream actually uh, paid off. Well, and and what's what's interesting about that is you have this book, The Grapes of Wrath, which is a story. And really, what I took away from your book is that Route 66 is about the stories, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. But really, yeah. that's how people told really the history of the road. Like you can sit down and you can break down everything that you went down the road, how many miles it is, where it turns, where it goes. But really the essence of the road are the kind of adventures, the things um, that happened along the road. And, and I wanted, so, so I want to share, I want to hear your stories um, on how you got interested. I want to tell my stories really quickly because I would be remiss if we ran out of time before I talk about Route 66 now it relates to me because I went to high school in a town called Braidwood, Illinois, which is this very small, tiny speck south of, of Chicago. And I later found out that Route 66 ran right through there's a very important part. And I love to find out that you dedicated two whole paragraphs to this small town of Braidwood in your book, <laughs> Route 66, The Mother Road. Everyone in town, all 5,564 people of Braidwood should go out and buy the book right now. I want to see your sales surge. But I, I find it fascinating that it ran through there. There's um, a, a Gemini giant outside of Wilmington, which is the next town over, uh, outside of a business called Launching Pad. There was um, a, a small place called The Polka Dot, which is a 50s-style yeah, yeah. American restaurant yeah. there. And I didn't know this yeah. at the time, but a McDonald's went across the street and ended up working there, like all kids who were in their teens. And I didn't realize how devastating that that is to Route 66. Now, mean, you know, meanwhile, the road hasn't existed, but that was, you know, that is exactly what kind of you talk about in your book where these fast food restaurants come in and, and destroy the places that were selling good food or that were locally owned. Um, you know, this is all part of it, but I grew up right around it. And one last little part. I remember when I was making my personal trek out to California from Chicago, I, I thought to myself, hey, I'll take Route 66. 
uh, that'll be a fun ride, having absolutely zero idea of just how long it was going to take. And someone said, we know it's going to take you like seven days because it's a really long road. Uh, so I didn't take the road. I had no idea how long it would take. I could have gone that route. I actually kind of regretted a little bit. But there is an advantage to the superhighways because it took me three days instead of seven. But you don't get the adventures. Uh, and I missed out on that. I'm a little, uh, you know, I'm disappointed in that. How, how did you get it, get enthralled with Route 66? And did you travel the entire length of road to, to write this book? Well, in, in answer to your, your last question about uh, people, of course, as there are always questions that people ask me. And uh, I, I remember when I was on the national book tour for Route 66, the Mother Road in 1990 when it just came out, and the, the interest was incredible. And we could see, I mean, the publisher went back to press three times while I was on the tour. You know, and now it sold a million copies. It was my first Pulitzer nomination. It sparked cars. I mean, it was really something. And I was in my hometown of St. Louis to do an interview on a major radio station, Drive Time Friday Night. Um, so uh, uh, publicists with me were in car vets. Oh, it was just a grand excursion. Went into the studio, saw copies of my book and press releases and put on the headset and we were just in time. Met the host, sat down. He looks me in the eye, we're live, and he says, Michael, have you ever traveled Route 66? Yeah, what a dumbass question. I said, pal, I could write a book about it. And he said, oh, well, of course you have. And I said, yes. So I have traveled the length of Route 66 innumerable times, east to west, west to east, long sections, short sections. I'm looking at my window right now at Route 66 crossing the Arkansas River. I'm on Route 66 every day of my life. I was born just off of Route 66 in St. Louis County, in a little village called Rock Hill, on an original alignment of 66, now called Manchester Road. As I like to say, I was born about as far as my hero Stan Musial could swat a hardball off the road. So it was always there for me. And, you know, we called it Highway 66. It's the road I, I, I broke into journalism on, selling the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on the shoulders of Route 66. I learned how to drive on Route 66, bought my first car on Route 66 in Pacific, Missouri, 55 Black Plymouth. Uh, I did my first courting on Route 66. Well. Yeah, yeah it was great <laughs> memories. Yeah. You know, and, and again, traveled the road with my family east and west. I, I, I knew that road so well as a young Marine hitchhiking. I'd come out of California and make my way up from Pendleton to L.A. And once I got out of the, yeah, the, the whole mess down there, I'm on 66. And I could see the shield and I said, God, I'm almost home. And of course, I wasn't. Uh, but, it, it, you know, if, if you're in a Marine uniform carrying a sea bag back then, I could get a ride in a New York second. So I have great memories as a reporter then. I covered the good, the badly, ugly, a lot of on 66. And I've lived in seven of the eight states. The only one I haven't lived in is Kansas with that sweet little less than 14 miles, one of my favorite stretches of the road. So I am what they call, uh, what people call me, a son of Route 66, a son of the Mother Road. And that's why when Route 66 was in that limbo period in the mid 80s to the late 80s, when the road was decertified, I got so tired of people talking about the road in the past tense. They might have taken down the federal shields and they might have built five different interstates paralleling Route 66 all the way from Chicago to Santa Monica. But 
the road was still there, most of it, at least 85% of it. And I knew people were still there. I knew Angel Delgadillo was still cutting hair in Seligman, that Lillian Redman was switching on the neon blue swallows in Tucumcari, that Ted Drews was dipping frozen custard at his place in St. Louis, right on Route 66. So that book is unabashedly a love letter, a tribute to the road, but more importantly to the people because it's the people of the road and you're right. It's their stories that really make the road important. And they offer you, they offer you a a child of today or anybody today, a glimpse at America before it became generic, before we all drove up, you know, to a metal box under golden arches and ordered lunch that came in a styrofoam box and it was the same thing you got in Seattle or San Bernardino or Miami, you know, uh, before everything was cookie cutter culture and homogenized. And, and that doesn't mean that every greasy spoon and pie palace you went into was necessarily great. There was a little bit of risk. There was a roll of the dice because if you went into a diner or a restaurant and you'd not been there before, you didn't know what you were going to get. You could get domain poisoning, but you could, and often you did, get a meatloaf platter you'd kill your mother for. You'd get a slice of rhubarb pie that was baked that very morning by the woman who served it to you. And that you can't beat. Well, I will tell you that I've rolled the dice on that. I've done a lot of traveling across this great land. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, and I will tell you, I've lost that roll of the dice a few times. Um, yeah. So there, there is something about homogenization, but I, I, I do agree with you. I think the risk outweighs um, you know, anything else that you could do. But it is true that you know nothing was the same. You never knew what you were going to get. Uh, and I do want to defend the person for asking if you've ever gone on Route 66 because I will tell you there's a lot of posers out there who would write a book about Route 66 having never spent any time on the road. So it is not as dumb of a question, I think, on the surface as you would initially believe because I've definitely talked to people who don't experience the things that they claim to be an expert in. Well, yeah, that's true, except this radio guy obviously didn't read the book or he would have helped me in the book that I'd been out on the road. Well, up and down. Well, and that's what's so (laughs) great about it is like your book really, I mean, because you break down every state and you talk about the cool things that are in it. And then, you know, on the sides, um, there's, you know, individual like kind of spotlights on people. But here's what, you know, here's, so as I was reading the book, what I did is I pulled up um, a map like a map of the United States. And as you talked about, and you really go down and break down every single town you hit on the road. And as you kind of talked about each town, I, I, I kind of followed your route, you know, not your route, the route, um, through, yeah. through, through the country. And, you know, what's kind of interesting, I did, a, I did some quick math and, you know, you wrote the book in 1990, which is essentially, you know, kind of guesstimate here with me is really the halfway point between today and when the road closed. And so the distance, so the time between when the road closed and when you wrote the book is the same time roughly between now and when you wrote the book, roughly about, I think, like 20, 25 years or so. And what was kind of interesting is when you wrote the book, there was still kind of this, you know, kind of energy. People were still, they knew about Route 66. Some of these, you know, the things you spotlighted, they're really cool, like the blue swallow you're talking about, um, the places that they were still in operation when you wrote the book. When I was going through and I was like, oh, hey, are those places still around? And I looked them up and then I would zoom in. And I remember there was one, like I think it was maybe the, one of the hotels, you know, it's boarded up and like the place looks desolate, like a bomb went off, you know. It was really kind of depressing to look at how some of these small towns, how truly decimated they were. These things you talk about in the book, they're not there anymore. The people you talk about, they're gone. I mean, there's one, I think you talk about one of the first gas stations, there's a guy... I could I could grab at my notes, but it would take me a minute. Um, and he, you know, he kind of started this gas station, and it was this you know single pump gas station in the small town. You know, he's dead, uh, but the people in the town bought the gas station, and they still operate it, and it looks like a gas station That's from Russell, the 1920s. Russell Soulsby. That's it. Like you're talking about Russell Soulsby. That's exactly what I'm talking about. 
Yeah. The, the, the thing, though, that I must stress is it, it's not all that bad because the blue swallow is better than ever. The La Posada, the great hotel in Winslow that was sitting there like a derelict with tumbleweeds and bats in it is now a, a five-star hotel with a Harvey house in it. Uh, and it's one of the most popular people drive from California to eat there from Phoenix. It's, it's just great. So there are many stories. This Renaissance is for real. That's why so many, and people just are starting to understand this, so many thousands and thousands of Western and Eastern Europeans and folks from the Pacific Rim, from Canada, from South America, come to America to experience this road. It's the foreign traveler today that keeps this road alive and perking. And yes, people do die. Obviously, we all die. Lillian Redmond died, but then it went into more caring hands. So some businesses have been resurrected. And also, very importantly, new ones have come in to play. Uh, so the ghost places like Glen Rio, New Mexico, on the border of New Mexico and Texas, a ghost town of making is very important because I can take people there and uh, there are more roadrunners there now than people. And I can remember being a Marine there hitchhiking at midnight on a Tuesday night. And it was like Times Square, you know, people coming and going. So all I do is point out and you can see the little cars and trucks like ants on Highway 40. And I said, and there's the killer right there death by interstate so even but even towns that were bypassed totally radiator spring style have been able to make a comeback because now people you know 45 bikers from norway and denmark fly in to uh, chicago rent harleys get a big chase vehicle and a spare harley and spend three, four weeks on the road. And they go to all these places and they spend money. It's economic development. And they even take time to make sidebar trips. They'll go up to the Grand Canyon. They'll go up to Las Vegas for two days. Uh, you know, so so generally it's it's a great story. And, and this is very important too. And it's ironic, this road that was so tied into the internal combustion engine. Now we're making it a road of the future uh, of, of alternative energy, uh, windmills all along the road, a, a push for uh, a fuel other than fossil fuel. You know, I mean, these are fighting words in Oklahoma, but it's, it's, it's happening and it's going to happen. It, it can be a road of the future. So it's a road of certainly the past. I mean, even historically, long before 1926, it was trails and traces that were very important. It's a road of the past, certainly the present, and and really the future. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like you know. It's funny because um, in one of the upcoming episodes, I'm talking to a guy who basically takes antique cars and swaps them out for Tesla engines. Um, it's this really cool thing here. But like, you know, that would be. I mean, that would be amazing. I love antique cars. I'd love to have one of those. Those you could see along Route 66 easily. Uh, you know, their Tesla's putting in these supercharged stations. You could put those along yeah. the road. This yeah. becomes a national historic trail. Now, all of a sudden, there could be a resurgence. You could really see, you know, almost a heyday kind of, you know, it's almost like, like you said, it's almost like a vacation along the road. I mean, this, it could really be big. I really hope to see that. That sounds amazing. Well, yeah, well, that, that is happening. But you're, you're right. It, it harkens back to me being a little boy again. We weren't destination oriented. When my dad backed that Plymouth down the driveway, his vacation began. <laughs> it, it didn't right, begin yeah. once we got to, I mean, the vacation was on yeah. just in traveling. Well, so the act of getting there was an important part of the experience. 
Well, and that's the whole, you know, that's the whole um, story, the plot line for the first National Lampoon's Vacation movie. You know, they drive from Chicago right, to right, Disneyland. Right, right. You know, and it's funny right. when you think about it because it took so long to go on that road. How many days off did people have back then? Because it would take like three weeks to go from Chicago to California and then back, unless you drove like eighteen-hour days. No, you, you you could make it. You could make it quicker than that, really. You can uh, remember. Um, you could make it in uh, four, sometimes three days. Remember, fathers, and I'm gonna. This is a blanket statement. Back then, okay. were usually the drivers, and you had this uh, adversarial situation in the car. You had dad wanting to make time, as they called it, and just yeah. keep driving. Remember, no stops, no stops. Yeah, I've been you like that mom, before. <laughs> yeah, mom riding shotgun with the maps and handing out sandwiches as long as they lasted and trying to keep peace. And then in the backseat, the kiddos saying, I want to go to that outlaw, you know, I want to malt. I mean, you know, I have to, I have to pee. And I remember my father would drive until he was exhausted. It would be dark. And he'd pull into a motel, and my mother would always, it was predictable, say, Herb, go in and look at the room first to see if it's okay. <laughs> that, that was kind of de rigueur. My father would be gone. He'd come back and said, the room's fine. Uh, and sometimes it wasn't. I, he never looked at a room. Right. But but I, I was just happy because the, the joint had a swimming pool. Right, yeah. You know? Uh, well, that was... <laughs> That that was just part of the travel experience. People are always asking me, how long does it take to travel the road? And I said, well, how much time do you have? Uh, it's a lifetime. Uh, I mean, it really is. But, but but truly what I tell people today, especially Mr. and Mrs. America with three and a half kids and a basset hound, you know, mm-hmm. and a van or an SUV, I said, why don't you do this? If you're going to do the whole route, cherry pick. Uh, there are plenty of guidebooks. There are great maps, current maps. They'll show you exits and entrances and, and cherry pick better yet divide the trip up into half or quarters or then why don't we do from Tulsa to Albuquerque or why don't we do from, uh, Phoenix, go up to flag and flag to Santa Monica, you know, divide it up a little bit. Uh, now, the Europeans that come and a lot of the foreign visitors have proper holidays. They have a long time off. They they can afford to do four weeks on the road easily. They also like the dollar, and they've done their research. They've read The Grapes of Wrath. They've read On the Road. They've read my book, uh, and they've seen the cars. classics, and right? <laughs> yeah, and, and so when they come here, they know what they're doing. What, yeah. what they want to see. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's amazing because a lot of the, I mean, some of the places that were really spared, I think if you're looking at route 66 now pre resurgence or, you know, in the middle of it, yeah. you know, places like Los Angeles. So for example, like I, you know, for a previous episode, I went up to, um, Glendora, California and visited a place called Rubel castle. I didn't realize yeah. it at the time, but while I was going there, it's on route 66. And so, you know, what was so cool is to go back down Route 66 and to see, you know, big neon signs are a real, you know, um, they're a real staple of Route 66. And there's this place called The Hat. I've never had, I mean, it's kind of a chain now, you know, it's, but it's like a, you know, it's a smaller chain, but it it was, I've never been there before. Best pastrami sandwich I've ever had. Um, you know, it, it was just really cool to see this is alive and well, but a lot of these places, they're alive and well in thriving metropolises in a place like Los Angeles, which does really kind of pride itself on, you know, not only being yeah. kind of a staple of the 1950s Americana, but also resurging. Like they have a really oh, yeah. a touch in touch with their history, you know? Oh yeah. Well, there, there's no doubt. There, there's that great, uh, fairly new neon, uh, museum in LA, oh, it's amazing. And all, all kinds of examples, <laughs> yeah. but 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 you know, even Michael Wallace has a pike pass. Even I travel the turnpikes, like you were saying, because even I sometimes have to quote unquote make time. But when I can, say I'm going from Tulsa to Oklahoma City, there's nothing more boring than that trip down the turnpike. Uh, number one, you're you're even physically removed from the ecology of the land. 
when I'm so when I can, I take old sixty six winding through all those little hamlets and villages, and you know, seeing extended family uh, along the way. And, and there's nothing predictable on any road trip I take on 66. And that's great because the predictable is what tourists seek. Travelers don't have to take home with them when they travel. You know, the proverbial ugly American going to Italy and the first thing they do is look for a McDonald's. I mean, that's a typical tourista thing, but a traveler wants to experience the new and find things and discover things and is not afraid to take a, a risk, even if it's uh, something they've never done before or tasted before or looked at before. And and, and that's all part of this uh, uh, movement called shun piking, where people actually shun the turnpikes and in the road. <laughs> Pardon me? A pike yeah, shaming yeah, is they, what they would call it nowadays. And they, and they, <laughs> and they return to, to the two lanes, yeah. Well, I, I will tell you that sounds great. I mean, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big highway shamer myself, but I will tell you that you know, in reality, like you said, sometimes the reality is not the rosy picture of nostalgia. Uh, when you're driving down a two lane highway and it's getting late, and you just and you just want to get to the next place, and you're stuck behind a huge oh, yeah. semi and you can't pass them. I mean, there's nothing fun well, about it, that. It, it, and and back to your 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 thoughts about metro areas yeah metro areas are my least favorite places on the road mm-hmm. and, and there are obvious exceptions we've talked about those in la uh, there's some in st louis certainly the best big city on the road is albuquerque because it's a no-brainer central avenue goes right through the heart of the city by the state fairgrounds by the university of new mexico through the central business district across the rio grande by old town and up nine mile hill and and that's always been a good, strong city. But often the road is very fluid and it moved a lot. Alignments would change, especially in the cities. So when if you're literally doing all of 66 and, and you can go all the way across, let me let me just do it this way. If you and I were sitting now finishing a cup of coffee on the steps of the Art Institute in Chicago, We'd get in the car, and I could keep, I could keep you on the road through damn near all of Illinois on one alignment or the other. We'd cross the Mississippi at St. Louis, and I could keep you on the road all the way down the Ozark Plateau to Joplin, all of Kansas, of course, mm-hmm. Mickey Mantle country in yeah. Oklahoma. I could keep you on 66 across 410 miles across Oklahoma. It's sort of a no-brainer in the Texas Panhandle, either the south or the north frontage roads. Amarillo is a great Route 66 town. And, and then it breaks up a bit in northern New Mexico and northern Arizona, but that's some of the the best of it, uh, it is. Then when you cross the Colorado River into Needles, I could keep you through the Mojave all the way up. You go up to Barstow, you hook a left, go down to San Bernardino, hook a right, and you take foothill all the way in through that necklace of towns. But boy, that's going to take you some time if you're literally following the road, you know, mm-hmm. through Pasadena, through Hollywood. It's really and all the way. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. sometimes that's not a lot of fun. No. Uh, you know, you don't. That's why I tell people. You know, most people, the folks out there, cherry pick, mm-hmm. you know, use your head, you know. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a great analogy here, which is the road is in some ways kind of like a river. And so, you know, a lot of roads are. And so, you know, when the highways came in, essentially they moved the river away and a lot of the towns dried up because the people are the water, the lifeblood of these towns, you know, with the economy. Um, and, and, you know, that's a kind of an interesting analogy. So in, in closing here, I mean, we've talked about a lot of stuff. If you, what are your top three favorite things to see <laughs> if you're going from Chicago to, you got the whole stretch of the road, man, even all 14, the big 14 in Kansas, what, three, what are your top three places you like to see? Oh, God, that question. It's like asking me, what's, what's the best place to eat on 66? 
just just uh, uh, I, I am going to answer you, but it's kind of like <laughs> asking me which of my books is my favorite. You know, they're that's nice. Uh, yeah. Usually, what I do is if I'm depending on who I'm talking to. I'll name some place in the state they are if they're Makes in a Route 66 state. Uh, I, I, I'll, let me do it this way. Uh, and, um, I'm going to your head, man. I'm holding you I, to this. I'm going to these top three places. You got to direct me. Okay. These are the 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 uh, the uh, top three. Number one, the Ariston Cafe, which I talk about in the Illinois book at, in. Uh, Litchfield, Illinois. Love it. Um, right off the bat, it's it's a great place. It's a it's a Mother's Day restaurant. That's why I call it where you would take your mom on Mother's Day. Uh, everything about it, the food, the service, the ambiance. It just if you put a pistol to my temple and said name the best place to eat on sixty six, I would always say the Ariston Cafe. Okay, all right. Um. Number two, it, so what I'm doing, I'm picking three things that are sort of symbolic of categories on the road. Okay. Probably the second the second place I would choose is the blue whale. Okay. It, it's actually a concrete smiling blue whale in mm-hmm. Catoosa, Oklahoma. There are mm. pictures of it in the book. It's totally... It's restored. Okay. It's the only smiling blue whale in the world. I guarantee that to you. <laughs> and it, it no one it, will challenge it, it you. Was, on that. <laughs> it was. It, it was. It, it, it was. It's. 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 It's an old swimming hall next door to it. Are the remnants of what was called the Ark, uh, all uppercase A R K, Animal Reptile Kingdom. And Hugh Davis, who built these things, was the former director of the Tulsa Zoo. It's just east of Tulsa. And it sort of represents all the kitsch, all the, uh, you know, the the Gemini giant, the biggest rocking chair in the world, which is a fairly new attraction up in Missouri. You know, all of that stuff. Then the third place I'm going to mention is a stretch of road. And it's a stretch of old 66, well west of Albuquerque, that winds into Laguna Pueblo, the Indian Pueblo there, on the Rio Puerco. And this stretch of road has always been one of my favorites, and it greatly impacted uh, the Pixar creative team when I brought them to this road. Um, uh, these rock cliffs where swallows build their nest, you know, the original adobes. It, it's the kind of place where you would expect to see Lone Ranger and Tonto up on a boulder. <laughs> sure, it yeah. just winds around. Uh, there's a big rock right on the shoulder that's so big and distinctive. It's even has a name. It's called Owl, O-W-L, Owl Rock. I love to cruise it because it sh- because not far away is the interstate i-40 just carrying through the land and this road snakes around maneuvers around you know it's it's robert blake the old english poet and artist once said uh, roads of improvement are straight roads but those crooked roads they are the roads of genius. And 66 is such a road, and you see it there. And, and, and some, many years ago, I had the creative team from Pixar on the road, and I was driving them through there. We had three big rental cars loaded with people all hooked up with radios. And I had the driver stop next to a red, sun-baked Chevy pickup, uh, and there was an old... Indian man, a Laguna man, driving. He had on a beat-up straw hat, had on uh, uh, sunglasses, and he was just beaming. And he was just parked there in the uh, opposite lane. And we pulled up next to him, windows down, and I yelled to him over the driver. I said, how you doing today? And he said, oh, I'm doing great. And he looked around, smiling, and he said, how do you like my road? 
<laughs> and I said, we like it a lot. And then we drove on. I'll never forget. That really simple, happened. <laughs> that simple, simple moments. They're always the best moments. So there you have, there you got three out of me. That is, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that is a great story to end with. Um, if people want to take this journey, if they want to read your book to get prepared, how can people find you? How can people find the book uh, and get on their own little Route 66 journey? Well, you can, you know, find me at michaelwallace.com. Um, I have the proverbial website that always needs updating, but there's stuff on there. If you just Google my name, Michael Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, Route 66, you'll find tons of stuff. My book is still, it, it continues to sell. It's put agents, children through college, believe me. <laughs> uh, right. It goes on and on and on since 1990. Route 66, the mother wrote, but uh, you can get it everywhere from Amazon to Barnes and Noble to ask for it. <laughs> and you can certainly, you can even buy it in non-bookstore places, of course, along Route 66. Well, I would hope so. I one time had a book signing in a bait shop. I had a book signing in a funeral home. Wow. You know, <laughs> That's well, crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Basically, anywhere you can find this book, whether you're, you know, visiting a, a, a coffee shop or, you know, saying goodbye to a loved one, you can get a signed copy of this book because you sign it everywhere. Uh, this is just incredible. Uh, you really got to experience this road yourself. I mean, in any stretch of it is pretty amazing. Uh, Michael Wallace, thank you so much again. The sheriff from Cars, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure, but. I just want to remind you to always keep in mind that life begins at the off-ramp. I like that. That is a great thing to keep in mind. I want everyone to keep that in mind. I want to thank you for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. To never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in. Where can you find those links? It's really easy. Go to fascinatingnouns.com. Scroll to the bottom. You can subscribe to all of the links there. You can also subscribe to the newsletter. Find out more about upcoming guests, current guests, past shows, upcoming little treasures that I'll have in the little nuggets of information in the newsletter. Plus, you can find the show on social media. Get links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest show, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, FGGGBT.com. That's FGGGBT.com. Say it again, FGGGBT.com. You can find that show there, all free. And I sit down. This is an incredible show. I sit down with a team of experts and take some form of pop culture technology and tell you how to make Make it in real life. We got a physicist, we got a rocket scientist, we got a biologist, we got everything you need to break this thing down and possibly make these things at home. We got the T1000, Everlasting Gobstopper, Frankenstein's Monster, Season 2 is coming out, we got portable holes, we got all kinds of stuff that you can make. Uh, FGGGBT.com. And if you like that show, you're going to love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com, find out all about my new projects, check them out, subscribe. Thank you for listening. And of transmission.